Welcome to Risk Watch, a podcast brought to you by VCheck Global that sheds light on emerging compliance and due diligence issues affecting private market investors, financial institutions, and global corporations. I'm your host, Alex Soren. In this episode of the podcast, Mike Blakenship came back on the show to discuss the IPO underwriting process, the role of due diligence, and the state of the IPO market. Mike's a managing partner at the Houston office of Winston & Strawn and focuses his practice on corporate finance and securities law, including securities offerings, public company advisory, special purpose company offerings, among others. You can find a link in the show notes to Mike's contact information on the Winston & Strawn website, as well as a link to the IPO underwriting presentation that the firm published back in May. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share. Thanks for coming back on the show, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you for having me. So it's been an interesting couple of years for the IPO and SPAC market, where we've seen things gone from feast to famine. And if you read headlines today, it seems like there might be a comeback in the works, but interesting to see how you see things on your end. Yeah, I think there's been, um, you know, over the last few years, we saw the SPAC market, you know, the boom in 2021, and then kind of come down. We saw the SEC come in and regulate and start to do more. And so it kind of spooked the market there. And so we've seen a lot of pullback on that. And, you know, with equities in certain industry sectors like technology have been pulled back. And so we've seen a lot of valuations been cut in half or, or further. There hasn't been this sudden need to do the SPAC deals, even though there are another number of SPACs out there. Now, on the IPO front, well before the SPAC boom, we didn't see a, a huge IPO on the traditional side. We did see a lot in the SPAC IPOs, but on the traditional IPO, there wasn't this large number that we had seen you know, in the lead years before 2019, where we saw a number in, in various industry sectors. I think today, we're starting to see a few more green shoots on that. You know, we saw the Kava Group come out and price well. We've seen a few others recently. And certainly, no, there are others in the in the hopper for the SEC to review, you know, whether confidentially submitted for now or will come out. But there are a number that are looking to do the traditional IPO front. And uh, I think we'll see an uptick in that come, you know, later in uh, Q3 and certainly Q4, sort of before that sort of early December timing that we typically see, uh, which then would push it out to, uh, you know, before mid-February of, of 2024. And the market is certainly seeing a lot of uptick in it, and I think we're going to continue to see some of that. Well, let's hope so. In a, a shaky IPO market, what are the business conditions that would push a company to go public versus waiting until things, you know, fully recover? Yeah, I think, you know, when a company has a couple options when it comes to going public or sale, or if it's owned by private equity, whether they're going to do a continuation vehicle or some other or other method, I think in a choppy market, some of them see the best value that they can get. And maybe it's a timing thing of its owners wanting to sell out or be part of you know, primary plus secondary. And so they're trying to make this option for some of its shareholders that it become public. Or they really are, are seeing a lot of deals out there and want the equity to be its currency to purchase other companies using their uh, equity instead of using the cash. Right. So in a choppy market, should all parties involved in the underwriting process be spending more time on the diligence and, and being more thorough? Is that something that you'd recommend? Oh, absolutely. I think it's uh, certainly if there are companies out there looking to go IPO in a, in a market like this, I think they need to be uh, make sure that there's a reason, you know, making sure that the diligence and everything that they're saying, I think diligence is certainly key. 
for all parties to make sure that the message is proper and you reduce your liability by saying the right things that match up with the diligence. Mm-hmm. So, so on that point, let's shift now to the presentation that you and your colleagues put out in May that shed more light on the underwriting process. So specifically, I want to focus on the role of due diligence in the underwriting process. And it'd be helpful if you can talk a bit about what Section 11 of the Securities Act is and then the due diligence defense and really help us understand what type of liability different parties involved in the underwriting process can face if they get something wrong in that registration statement. Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question. Under Section 11 of the Securities Act of uh, 1933, the underwriters who are underwriting the securities have a strict liability under Section 11, and claims could be made under uh, Section 12 and 10b-5. And part of to buttress that or to re- a rebuttable presumption there is if you have the due diligence defense under Section 11. All parties, that includes your issuer, your underwriters, your accountants, all could take liability potentially if the statement's in the, in the draft registration statement or in the final prospectus. And, and I mentioned draft because that's early, but it, it, you know, and the one that goes effective with the SEC, you can take strict liability for misstatements or omissions within that document. So you're, you know, go out and effectively make it sales to investors and, you know, you're misstating certain facts that haven't been backed with diligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be a high risk. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not just things that could be disclosed in the risk factor section, right? It could be if if a, a director makes certain education claims that, that aren't accurate or if they're actively involved in other litigation, even if it's, it's with another company. That's all stuff that has to be caught and included, right? That's correct. You have to make sure that you have all that included and it's up to date and, and it's accurate. There's a liability part of this, but then there's also the reputational part. So how much of an impact reputationally could it have on an underwriter if proper diligence isn't conducted and something makes it into that registration statement that's untrue or significant risk is omitted, and then there's the liabilities that, that come after that. But from a reputational standpoint, what kind of what kind of damage can that do? I think it can do quite a bit of damage because they're known if you're known for not actually backing up and doing their work necessary, it can be damaging to the underwriter that they're not taking it seriously, that it's you know sloppy and you know their investors won't or their buy side clients won't want to buy securities from them because they, you know, that level of trust could be eroded because of their lack of proper diligence. Mm-hmm. So how does your firm and your peer firms assist in the diligence process when you're serving as counsel to underwriters? Because I know it's not really a one size fits all approach. There are some firms that that leave the diligence, you know, to the underwriters and they don't don't take that much of an active role in it and then others that that do, but Interesting to hear on your end, you know, what what do you all do that, that might be different from others? Yeah, I mean, we break it down to three diligence buckets. So you have your financial, your legal, and your business. We assist with sort of all three in a way that we ask and put together a due diligence request list and then go through the data room for that company to make sure information is tracked, that we have the proper stuff that we would need for that registration statement on the what we'll do phone calls, we'll have other types of diligence that's undertaken to get the kind of information and make sure it's fully vetted on our side. We'll specifically look at the legal diligence contracts, other uh, things that may hit the legal bucket, and we'll prepare it and help you know prepare that and, and make sure that people understand what it is being said and what we're doing there. Mm-hmm. 
to, to wrap up here, I mean, what sort of value do you see in, you know, as legal counsel taking a more active role in the diligence process versus, you know, handing it off solely to the underwriters and then just saying, show me what comes back? I think it's more important to have your counsel do that because it gives you some sort of viability, you know, allows you to say, hey, we're doing this diligence and we've, you know, looked at counsel, they've done it. And look, counsel, we have to give what's called a a 10B5 negative assurance letter and opinions to the underwriters. And so we do need to make sure that our diligence is done correctly and and properly. Mm -hmm. Well, look, we should be in for an exciting market and, and there's a lot of changes happening. So you know, we'll see, see how things shake out. But, you know, as always, really appreciate you coming on and, and spending time with us. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure and I appreciate it and look forward to further discussions with you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.